be seated. We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, and the 14th chapter, the book of Romans, and the 14th chapter this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of this epistle. I will be reading again and then preaching this morning on verses 1 through 12 of Romans chapter 14. I encourage you to read along silently with me as I read aloud this morning. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you, why do you dispose, excuse me, despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time together this morning as an assembled body of believers to hear your word. We would ask now for the leadership and the work of your Holy Spirit that he would grant us an understanding of this text this morning and grant it to us in such a way that our lives are transformed, our thinking is changed, our conduct is renewed, so that we may give honor and glory to you. For that is our desire today, through what we hear, to bring you glory. So we ask now for the work of your Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren, in Romans chapter 12 and chapter 13, the Apostle Paul stressed the duty that we have to live in a way that reflects our willingness to honor others and to bless one another. For whether it is our duty to show honor to the civil authorities or to fulfill the law in loving our neighbors or to live as children of light rather than quarreling with one another or acting out of jealousy, we are called to live differently than we did before. We are called to make no provision for the flesh. For Jesus Christ is now our Lord and Master, and we are to put him on, meaning we are to trust in him wholly, and we are to adorn ourselves with his righteousness as our spiritual identity and as our spiritual clothing, because we have been called to live and to love others as he did. And our commitment to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lusts, according to Romans 13 and verse 14, should not only be evident in the way that we live among our neighbors in general, but it should be especially evident in our relationships within the church in our relationships within the church. For if there is one place where the followers of Christ should be treating one another with honor and respect, it is within their own spiritual family. It is among those who hold the same faith that they do. 
It is among those who depend upon one another's acceptance and support to stand firm together. Because spiritual families can only thrive where there is love and acceptance between all of its members. Where there is a willingness on the part of each member to love others despite their shortcomings and despite their weaknesses and despite their obvious need for greater growth and maturity. And this, in many ways, describes life within the church. For a local church is not a place that is reserved for those who have fully arrived. It is not a place reserved for those who have fully arrived or who have no further need for growth. But rather, the church is where Jesus Christ places us to be exposed to those means that help us to mature and that help us to grow, to place us in relationships with other believers that force us to see how truly in need we are for those things that build unity and peace among us. In short, we need each other. We've been placed here for each other. And it is here within the local church that we find the means that we need in order to grow up. And yet, sadly, it is possible for churches to become places where very little of what I have described is evident. For when members of a church make no effort to put on Jesus Christ, when they make no effort not to gratify the flesh in their dealings with one another, the results can be tragic. For rather than love and acceptance being evident within the flock, there can be a host of unloving attitudes present. There can be criticism, judgmentalism, impatience, the refusal to forgive and to allow others the time to mature. In fact, churches can sadly begin to devour themselves and their own members. And churches can be deprived of the spiritual supportive environment that we all need to grow up in. And therefore, what is needed by church leaders and by all church members collectively is a clear understanding that we are not called into churches to be judges of one another or to find fault with those who struggles in a way that we do not, but we are called to extend to each other the grace and the acceptance that we ourselves hope to receive when we give an account before Jesus Christ. And how does our sermon text this morning, Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, bring these truths to light? Well, here in this very practical text of Scripture, Paul provides the church in Rome with heavenly wisdom. We talked about the need for heavenly wisdom this morning. Paul provides the church in Rome with heavenly wisdom through divine inspiration on how to minister to the weak and how to minister to the strong, and especially in matters which could easily divide believers. For as we read this entire text this morning, we see that there was a disagreement between believers in the church at Rome over the eating of certain foods 
and over the observance of certain days. And in evaluating the circumstances surrounding this disagreement, which Paul does in some detail here in this 14th chapter, Paul concludes that the real concern was not the question of food and days, but the real concern was the way these believers were treating one another. The way that these believers were treating one another. Furthermore, after considering the viewpoints that are expressed in this disagreement, Paul does not hesitate to identify those who were involved as those who were weak in faith and those who were strong those who were weak in faith and those who were strong or those who had confidence in their liberty related to these issues. And for our purposes this morning, I'm not going to deal with the content of their disagreement. We'll, we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week as we continue in chapter 14. But I want us to look at what Paul teaches about ministering to both groups about ministering to both groups, about ministering to the weak and ministering to the strong. For Paul shows real concern for the weak and he shows real concern for the strong. In fact, he expresses acceptance and appreciation for both. And he wants to help both to love and appreciate the other. So what does Paul do? Well, he addresses how we should minister to both, beginning with those who are weak in faith. Beginning with those who are weak in faith. Notice verse 1, where Paul says this, As for the weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And so in ministering to the needs of Christ's church, Paul first recognizes that there will be saints, there will be believers in our congregations who are weak in faith. Weak in faith. And notice the wording here very carefully. Paul does not say weak in the faith, as though they're questioning the Christian faith. But rather, he says, they are weak in their own ability to receive certain things by faith. The problem with the weak is really a matter of spiritual maturity. And Paul is not saying that these individuals, the weak, are a threat to the church, nor is he saying that they should be pitied. But rather, Paul states here in verse 1 that such believers should be welcomed. Notice that they should be welcomed, meaning that they should not only be recognized as fellow believers, but they should be received. In fact, the word literally means taken in among you, to be received by you, to be welcomed within your bosom with affection and tenderness. For in receiving them in such a way, we not only affirm that they belong to Jesus Christ, but that they occupy a valuable place in the life of the church. And yet Paul also stresses here in verse 1 that while we are to receive them graciously, we are not to allow them to disturb the overall peace of the church with quarrels over matters over opinions that have no profit to the spiritual health of the church. 
Because another problem with weak believers is that they lack discernment. And they can be drawn into debates and quarrels over matters that are more distracting and more divisive than they are edifying. And Paul acknowledges here in verse 2 that quarrels of this nature had emerged in the church at Rome over the question of eating or abstaining from certain foods. Notice what he says here in verse 2. He writes, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Because in the case of this church, and this can happen, by the way, to any church, not just this church, but any church today, opinions rather than sound doctrine can be allowed to reign. Too much latitude can be given to those in doubt. So what does Paul do next? He addresses the strong within the church, those who understand the full extent of their liberty, but who could also be tempted to look down on those who possessed a weaker faith in the matters at hand. Because the strong were also contributing to this problem by failing to respect their weaker brethren. For Paul writes here in verse 3, notice verse 3, Let not him who eats, or him who is confident in his liberty in Christ, despise the one who abstains. Notice the dynamics that are going on here. Because Paul understood that even those who are strong can have weaknesses. Even those who are strong can be tempted to take pride in what they know, and they can develop an attitude of superiority towards those who are not as confident as they are, or those who are not as well informed in the matters of Christian liberty as they are. And so Paul urges the strong not to look down on those who disagree because of weakness, but to look on them instead as brothers and sisters in Christ who they should love and endeavor in the bond of peace and with the spirit of humility to help. For God has not placed the strong in the congregation to criticize weaker brethren. God has not placed the strong in congregations to demean the weak and the struggling but to help them. See, there's a reason that we've been placed in the congregations that we're in at the level of maturity that we're in with the people in various levels of maturity around us. It's to help us all come to a place of maturity and greater certainty. For what we know as strong believers should be used not to criticize or to demean the weak, but to impart knowledge and assistance to our weaker brethren. And yet notice here in verse 3 as well that Paul not only has words of admonishment to the strong about what they should not do towards the weak, but he also has words for the weak regarding their need not to judge or to find fault with those who are strong. For notice what Paul writes here at the end of verse 3. Let not the one who abstains, this is referring to the weak believer, pass judgment on the one who eats, which is referring to the strong believer. For God has welcomed him. And notice both are welcomed. 
In verse 1, it's the weak who are to be welcomed. Here in verse 3, it's the strong who have been welcomed by God. For there is often a temptation among those who are weak in the faith to judge harshly those who rejoice in their liberty, which the weak cannot agree with. And the weak may even question the faith of those who disagree with them, since the weak lack genuine discernment. So Paul highlights here in our text what, what kind of sinful attitudes both the weak and the strong can possess. Both the weak and the strong have certain strengths and certain weaknesses, certain challenges and certain opportunities. Paul highlights how sinful attitudes can hinder the ministry in both directions, because unless the weak and the strong both see the importance of one another, unless they recognize that God has a place for both of them within the church, there will be quarrels. There will be disagreements of various kinds. However, even more significantly than Paul's warnings about their perceptions and attitudes toward each other is Paul's challenge here in verse 4, both to the weak and both to the strong, as to who's really qualified to judge at all. Don't miss this point. For in rushing to judgment about one another, both groups here in the Church of Rome were forgetting that only Jesus Christ has the right to judge his own servants. Only Christ does. For Paul writes here in verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so what Paul is asking here is, What right do you have regardless of your level of maturity and regardless of the maturity of those that you disagree with to judge the status of another servant when you are not their master. Nor could you be their master because you did not give them life. You did not set them free. You are not the one that they owe their allegiance to. And of course, this is a, a very humbling question for all of us to consider, for so often we have such a high opinion of ourselves. So often we have such a high view of our learning and what we have discerned. We have such a high view of our opinions that we act and think like we are the judge and we are the jury. And that other people, if they are simply wise enough, should share our opinions. And yet Paul assures the readers of this epistle, he assures you and I as well this morning, that our opinions regarding the ultimate status of any believer mean absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. For it is before Jesus Christ who is their master, that any believer stands or falls. And if we ever begin to demand that our opinion or our judgment of another believer is the determining factor in how Christ will deal with them, then we are not only guilty of thinking too highly of ourselves, but we are also guilty of sinning against our brother and sister in Christ as well. For while we are called to be our brother's keeper, 
we are not called to be our brother's judge. We are called to be our brother's keeper, but not to be our brother's judge. Whether a, a brother or sister ultimately stands or falls is, is not dependent upon us, but upon Christ and his dealings with his own people. For if a person is truly a believer, he will be upheld. Notice that in the text. You might have some, suspic some suspicions about another believer. You may have some concerns. You may not even approve. But the ultimate judge is Christ. And Christ is the one who will uphold them. In fact, this is what Paul states here in the rest of verse 4, because the Lord is able to make a believer stand firm. And this is true regardless of whether a believer is weak or a believer is strong, for we all are the Lord's work. We are His workmanship. He is at work in us through His Holy Spirit. And His Spirit will complete the good work that God is doing within us. Therefore, beloved, as we minister to one another as weak brethren and as strong brethren, let us remember that we have a duty to love and to appreciate one another. We have been placed in the same local church to grow up together. In fact, none of us are so weak that we are without justifying faith, and none of us are so strong that we have no need to grow up and no need to mature more. We are all in the process of growing together. We are all in the process of growth. None of us have reached perfection. We must not allow the temptation to be proud and judgmental to hinder our spiritual progress. And yet, how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, here in the rest of our text this morning, Paul presents three ways that we can ensure that our, our hearts and minds are focused in the right place as we minister to one another, both weak and strong. Three ways that we can ensure our hearts and minds are focused in the right place. First, we can ensure that our hearts and minds are focused in the right place by keeping our focus Godward by keeping our focus Godward and upon what honors Him. For Paul writes here in verses 5 and 6, One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it how? In honor of the Lord. And the one who eats how? Eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one, the weaker who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Notice how often that phrase, in honor of the Lord, is repeated again and again and again. Yes, there are differences, but if they are sincere, they're doing so in the honor of the Lord. So here Paul recognizes the fact that believers will often possess different convictions with respect to how and to what they can participate in, and that whatever their personal convictions are, they should hold them sincerely with a settled mind and with a clear conscience. And yet at the very heart and at the core of our convictions should always be our desire to honor God. 
That's the bottom line. That's the heart of the issue. That's the core of the matter. For as much as we want to show honor, as much as we want to show sensitivity to others, we must first ensure that our own motivation is to honor God. And if we are doing what we do and what is lawful for us to do with a sincere desire to honor God, then it matters not how others view us. Did you hear that? All that this life is preoccupied with. If it's not about us, then why should we be living for the world? It matters not what other people who are not our Lord and Master think or say about us and our commitment to Christ, because what truly matters, what truly matters at the end of all things is what Jesus Christ thinks. That's what really matters. He is the one that we long to please. And he is the one, according to Paul here in verse 9, who, who died and rose again so that he would be the Lord over those who have died to self, those who are alive unto him, for they recognize his rightful claims to rule over them as Lord. And then lastly, we can assure, or excuse me, we can ensure that our hearts and minds are focused in the right direction as we minister to one another, both to the weak and to the strong, by remembering that all of us, all of us without exception, will give an account of ourselves before God. Or Paul writes here in verses 10 through 12 of this text, notice it. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you? Why do you despise your brother, speaking here to the weak and to the strong? For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an accounting of himself to God. And so as we come to the end of this section, Paul makes it clear. He makes it crystal clear, undoubtedly clear, that the real judge is Christ. The real judge is not us. In fact, our judgment will not affect the dealings of the Lord with others, and our own judgment of ourselves will not be the basis on which we are judged by God either. But rather, all judgment has been reserved for Jesus Christ. All judgment has been reserved for Jesus Christ, and he has received that name which is above every name, that at his name every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For the true judge will be honored. And therefore, let us not, dear brethren, be tempted to usurp the authority of Christ alone, and to attempt to, to judge our brother or sister in Christ as though they must answer to us. Nor should we despise them who belong to Christ and who are under his care and security. But let us love and appreciate and labor for the growth of one another. Let us love and appreciate and labor for the growth of one another, for the weak, for the strong, for ourselves, for our brethren. And let us do so, dear brethren, 
with a meek and tender spirit. A meek and tender spirit, understanding who we are by grace, understanding that we are what we are by grace, that it is only by grace that we are